All right, with that being said, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, and please stand for the reading and the hearing of God's Word. <clears throat> I'm actually going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, for a little bit of context, and then I'll read uh, through verse 10 of chapter 7. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent uh, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Listen to this, it's very important. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, uh, by I'm sorry, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Through the years of uh, my pastorate and, and preaching and teaching and studying uh, before that and just trying to get a grasp of God's word and trying to rightly understand and <clears throat> be able to rightly divide the word of God. I've studied Melchizedek, you know, on and off and I've pursued after an understanding of it and I think part of that because it just came up in, in my reading uh, over the years several times as I read through the scriptures but I think another reason is that it's one of those mysterious parts of Scripture, uh, if you know what I mean. If you're a student of the Word, then uh, you've, you've probably come across the Melchizedekian order, as some refer to it, or uh, the person of Melchizedek. You've read Hebrews, and uh, you've asked yourself, who is this Melchizedek? Uh, maybe you read Genesis 14 or uh, in the Psalms. Maybe you read... Uh, of the few passages where Melchizedek is even mentioned. He's only mentioned in two places, and uh, we don't have a lot of information on Melchizedek. We're not sure exactly who he was, where he came from. You know, what's, what's going on with this guy? We see him in 
Psalm 110, we see him in Genesis 14, and we find him here in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 7. Not a lot of information on Melchizedek. Uh, we don't know a lot. And so oftentimes when there is a shadowy idea in Scripture, it's kind of, it's kind of alluring to us. It draws us in. We want to know about those things that are kind of mysterious. And so some of my study has surrounded that and uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. I'm going to do the best that I can with what limited information that we have in the scripture to paint a picture for you of why the author of Hebrews, why the apostle, why he would include this teaching about Melchizedek when there's such little info on uh, Melchizedek and who he was and and uh, the, the significant specifics of, of his person. We don't, we don't know a lot. Especially in light and in contrast to uh, much of Hebrews, the rest of the book, that we see so many allusions to Old Testament realities. So many clear and explicit uh, references to Old Testament documents, to Old Testament stories and teachings and systems and the way things worked as the apostle that wrote Hebrews is writing and, and speaking to these Jews who have converted to Christianity and now are kind of teetering on the edge and, and kind of uh, going back and forth with the idea, well, maybe we should go back to the way that we used to do things. Maybe we should go back to the sacrificial system or the, the offices of high priest and reestablish those. Maybe we should start keeping the law maybe and they were kind of you know wondering should we go back should we do this I'm not sure what we should do and so many times he's laying out Old Testament realities in detail and he is pointing out and remember what's the theme of the book of Hebrews it is this that Jesus is better that Jesus is superior if there's one big idea that we should all get from the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is superior in every way, in, in every instance, on every level. Jesus Christ is better. He's superior. He is the final say-so. He is the king of kings. He is above all. He is just superior. That's the big idea. Well, as we move into the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, we see this uh, Melchizedek, we see him arrive on the scene and in the pages of this letter written to the Hebrews, and we start asking some questions. And we have some information here about why he's presented, but there's a lot of information that's just not available to us because there's not a lot written on him. And I'll touch on that, and I think that that in and of itself is, uh, is important to us. It's important to the meaning and the reason that, that the apostle included him in this. So let me go back and just certainty of God's promises, the fact that God cannot fail. And if you remember last time, we talked about in these two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have this assurance, right? And we said, what two things? He only said one, God can't lie. And then we pointed out that in that context, and as we read and as we understand, we understand that the two things are a positive and a negative. The positive is that with an oath, God declared by himself, because he could declare and because he could guarantee it with nothing higher, he, he declared and he affirmed and he, re, he reassured by his own name, by himself, 
that he was going to provide this salvation, this blessing. So there was the first. The first is a positive is, is that God has made an oath. And we, we broke down to some degree the different covenants that we see throughout the Old Testament with a little bit of an it, uh, emphasis on the Abrahamic covenant that was a little distinct from the other covenants. And all the covenants have their own distinctions and their own specifics. But we set the Abrahamic covenant apart because in that covenant, it was a one-way covenant that God made to Abraham. As a matter of fact, he, in uh, Genesis chapter 15, which oddly enough comes right after Genesis 14, in which we see Melchizedek mentioned and we see the story that we find Melchizedek in. And I'll, we're going to go and touch on that. I don't know how much time I'll have or how much I'll get to. We'll see. But we see Melchizedek in Genesis 14, and there's a story there about the kings of this world, uh, four kings of this world fighting against four kings of this world, and these cities were going at it. And uh, you have these, this one set of worldly kings who uh, destroyed and conquered these other kings, and they took a bunch of people captive, okay? I'm, I'm uh, short, short internet here, but... We have one set of worldly kings who took over another set of worldly kings. They took a bunch of people captive. Uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was one of them. Abraham, who is no king, actually assembles just his family who is trained, his try, his people, right? He's been training some men. He just gathers those together, and he's like, hey, listen, we're going to go get my boy back. And this man who is no king goes and whips this team of kings and their cities and gets these people back okay and then as he's coming back he's met in the field by this this mysterious figure Melchizedek who he then offers a sacri a tenth of everything everything to this man Melchizedek to this person Melchizedek who uh we don't know where he came from as a matter of fact it explicitly says we don't know where he came from. He has no genealogy, and genealogies are huge in the Old Testament, huge in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't know where he came from. We don't know who his father is, and that's how you established the legitimacy of anyone who would claim that they were a part of this thing that God was doing and so on and so forth. And so right after that, we have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 in which God actually puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And I think this is significant because it shows that, that Abraham really has no part in this covenant except to be the recipient of the promises of God. To be the recipient. There was nothing that Abraham could do to cause God to bless him and to be faithful to him. Now, we do know that there were things that Abraham did. What were they? They were several. There, you know, he, uh, he went into the land Without question, he obeyed God. He uh, went to offer up his son uh, Isaac, which we know uh, um, we know that that one particular um, instance where Abraham was faithful is laid out as when he did that. It was man, his faith was obvious to everyone, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, all this is significant because as we're moving through this, we see the idea of the. Um, the significance and the, and the 
authority of Abraham, who was the patriarch, one of the greatest figures in uh, Judean culture and in Judaism, period. We see this, this greatness and this significance to the person of Abraham. And now we see this, uh, this Abraham who has all this power, all this significance, all this value in the mind of the Jew, in the mind of those who are, uh, have come out of Judaism. We see Abraham put up under Jesus Christ. And it's done in such a way that he's not even just under Jesus, but he's two rungs down. You see, if the, if the purpose of Hebrews is to demonstrate to those Jews that Jesus is better, what the apostle is doing in Hebrews is he's not diminishing the worth, the value, and the, uh, the greatness of those who have come before. No. He doesn't tear down those systems. He doesn't destroy. He does not um, criticize. He is simply saying that these are what they are, but I'm telling you about Jesus who is here. Does that make sense? So we move out of chapter 6 and we see these promises and the certainty of God's promises through this promised one who would be coming in the line of David as the promised seed of Abraham as the recipient of the blessings that were due through the Abrahamic covenant so all of those blessings and all of those promises would be fulfilled to Abraham in Abraham's seed and we talked last week about Galatians where it teaches explicitly that Seeds is not plural, but he says to his seed. And who is Abraham's seed? It's Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed. And so all those promises are secured and certain through Jesus. Well, here at the very end of Hebrews chapter 6, we start to see how they are secured in Jesus. And that is because Jesus Christ is the intermediate he is the mediator of this better covenant. He is the mediator. So, again, and we'll get into this in chapter 8. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But we'll see that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, of a better covenant. Now, remember last week I kind of talked a little bit about and, and showed you a little bit about the different positions that people hold and how some people think that there's really only one or two covenants and these are different um, administrations of the same covenant. Others would say that there's all these exactly different covenants and they're not, you know, related uh, in large part. And just, they're just all over the place. Personally, I hold to the understanding that there are different covenants. There, the Abrahamic covenant is not the same as the Mosaic covenant. I do not believe that these are different administrations or representations or manifestations of the one covenant of grace throughout the Old Testament. I don't believe that. I believe that we have different covenants that look different, have different requirements, have different specifics, have different uh, realities attached to them. The Mosaic covenant we talked about is a covenant of works. It was a covenant of works on, uh, on purpose, for a reason, to demonstrate to everyone that if you were in uh, if you were in a covenant of works with God, you're all going to hell. None of you will ever be a part of God's family. If the condition for you is that I will be, if God says, I will be your people, I mean, I will be your God and you will be my people, if you obey my commands, you're done. And so am I. 
That was the Mosaic Covenant. But previous to the Mosaic Covenant was the Abrahamic Covenant in which God told Abraham, you will be blessed and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. You won't even be able to count them. Why? Because to your seed I will give. Through you, your seed will be blessed. Who is the seed? Jesus Christ. And so through Jesus Christ, all of the promises of Abraham are absolutely sure and steadfast. They cannot be moved. They cannot be touched. They cannot be denied. And so Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, some would say, well, see, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant is really just the Abrahamic covenant repackaged. No, it's not. The new covenant is related to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this, these are my opinions. You can have a different opinion on this. We can still be friends, okay? This is how I understand it. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise. The new covenant is a covenant of faith. Let's say it this way, in the way I understand it. If the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise, the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works, the new covenant is the covenant of faith by which the Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. All, he is perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient. He is true Israel. He is the one who keeps it. He is the one that, that earns it, so to speak. He fulfills and does all the works needed to make those promises sure in the Mosaic Covenant. So, since he fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant and he is the promised seed of the Abrahamic Covenant, through Jesus Christ, perfect obedience and his sacrifice, we now receive the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. Abrahamic Covenant is a covenant of promise. Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of works. New Covenant is a covenant of faith through which the works are satisfied and the promises uh, are made real and applied to the believer through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense, everybody? You following? Praise the Lord. So, what do we do from here? This is the whole purpose. This is the whole purpose. Is that the author of Hebrews is laying out for us the way it all works and the way that we understand that it all works together. And now he's going back to use an Old Testament illustration from the person of Melchizedek to demonstrate to us the relationship that Jesus has with Abraham and, in my opinion, with the Abrahamic covenant, with this person, with this figure in the Old Testament. And so... Let's look here at this last verse because it's very significant. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's the first time Melchizedek shows up in this story right here in this book, and it's very significant. And so you have this this high priest who has entered into the heavenly places we know by scripture that he has entered into the heavenly sanctuary in the old testament i don't have time to get into all this but we had the holy of holies where the high priest would go in he would spread the blood around and so on and so forth in order that he might be the high priest and the mediator to um to deal with the sins of the people in a temporary uh, fashion they were not able to cleanse the conscience they were not able to actually relieve of sin but they were only a demonstration of what Christ would later do and so we have Jesus though who has entered into the real sanctuary the real holy place the real uh, high place this 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 place that only he can go and then it says having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek now if Jesus Christ has went in 
uh, on our behalf as a forerunner to the highest place, to the place that the tabernacle holy of holies only represented. He's went into the actual one as the perfect sacrifice, as the, uh, as the one who perfectly fulfilled everything. And now we see as the perfect high priest. So you see how Jesus Christ is all of the above. This is why the entire Old Testament is a foreshadowing and a type of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament, though real, historical, accurate, there really was a Moses. There really was Israel. There really was a Jacob. There really was an Adam. There really was all these things. History played out that way to paint a picture with a, with a magnificent stroke of the brush that there's one coming that all of these put together couldn't add up to he is the king of righteousness and he is coming now we need Jesus Christ we need him to be the uh, perfect sacrifice we need for him to be the the one who can go into the holy of holies we need for him to rip the curtain which is him dealing with the law we need for him to do all these things but the only way he can do all those things is if what if he is a high priest and not only that but Jesus Christ needs to remain a high priest how long Huh? Come on. Forever. Why? What happens if Jesus Christ ceases to be high priest for even a day? We cease to be people of God. There is no way that we can enter into and remain in a relationship with the holy God without the mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the high priest forever. If we do not have him even for a second, then all of our sins are back to us. And we have nobody to stand in between us and God to be our covering, to be our righteousness, to have cleansed our sins and kept them away. You see, everybody's uh, always talking about the fact that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins let me point out today that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins and keep you saved justification is beautiful sanctification is necessary as well because you know what I'm gonna do tomorrow I'm gonna sin and if Jesus is my savior today but he's not tomorrow then I'm lost tomorrow you see, Jesus Christ is necessarily the high priest forever because we have to have an intercessor on our behalf continually being our righteousness every second, every millisecond, every smallest uh, measurement of time that you could possibly imagine. Every one of those, every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of whatever, forever, forever. Now, here's another key, and this is not uh, necessarily coming straight out of here, but just because of some work I'm doing with Brother Keith, is that when it says here, and I know I ain't even started chapter 7 yet. We're going to get it. When it says here, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it cannot mean that Jesus Christ became upon his death the high priest. Or upon his resurrection to life, which is a belief that some hold. Some hold that Jesus Christ was not qualified as high priest until he made his sacrifice, went into the grave, was resurrected, and then was established as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It cannot be. And I say that with full confidence. It can't be that way. It necessarily cannot be that way. Anybody want to guess why? There you go. That's, a, that's perfect. That is, you are on the money. Yes. Why? It is this reason. 
who are the one, who are the only ones that had the right, the privilege, the honor, the call, the command to be a go-between, to be a mediator, to be the one who would offer up uh, sacrifices for the sins of the people. Who was it? The high priest. Now, if Jesus Christ was not a high priest until after the resurrection, would his offering of his own sacrifice, would it have been uh, legit? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ was born into this world as the high priest. Jesus Christ has existed. Jesus Christ has always met every single requirement needed to be the high priest that he needed to be. Whether in eternity past, and we don't know what that looks like. Whether it was as he was in his mother's womb. Whether you're talking about him as a nine-month-old baby. Jesus Christ, and we know this, another line of reasoning. So one, his offering would not have been any good. He had to be high priest at the moment of his offering. So some have suggested, well, at the time of his baptism, when he went down into the water and he came up and the dove descended upon him, at that moment God declared him uh, worthy of this title or something to that nature or something to that effect. Now, we might could go along with that because that would mean that his offering was legit and he can be the Savior of the world. But I would only say that Hebrews itself takes me away from that idea. Because do you remember back in the first parts of chapter of, of Hebrews when we talked about the way that his priesthood is established and the, and the, uh, the difference that his priesthood and the establishment of his priesthood had with the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. Does anybody remember what the difference was? They are established by the system, by the law, according to their uh, heritage, according to their blood, according to who they were. They had to meet these specifications. What was Jesus? Did he come by law? Did he come by meeting some type of specifications of law? No. It says he was established as a high priest through his what? Sonship. Now, did Jesus Christ become the Son of God at his baptism? No. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he has been that way forever. When this speaks of him becoming the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, it is similar to what we had talked about when it says back that he became the perfect sacrifice, he became these things. He was made perfect through suffering. It wasn't that he wasn't perfect already. It was that his perfection was demonstrated in his sacrifice. He became glaringly, obviously, the, the perfect sacrifice for this task. And in this, we see that Jesus Christ, having become a high priest forever after the Melchizedek, we understand that all that is teaching, all that I can see that it can be teaching, is this, is that Jesus Christ, through his, his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, demonstrated that he was the one who had been foreshadowed all those years before. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Okay, now let's, chapter 7. What I'm supposed to be preaching today. All right. Let's, so let's talk about this Melchizedek guy. He's kind of an odd guy, <clears throat> a lot of mystery surrounding him. 
A lot of you women would have liked him. He's mysterious. Mysterious. I want me a mysterious man, which I don't know why you want a mysterious man. I want, you know, I figure you want a man. I don't know everything about that guy, you know. Uh, No surprises, bro. No surprises. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, all that's significant, but let's break it down a little bit at a time. First of all, Melchizedek's name, okay? Melchizedek's name. Melchizedek's name is actually, uh, his name is made up uh, by putting two Hebrew words together, or a variation of those two Hebrew words. The first is Melech, and in Hebrew, the word Melech means king. It simply means king. And the second part of his name, Zedek, means righteousness. Uh, Zadok is actually uh, more of a name that's used in uh, the Old Testament, but Melech and Zedek is king and righteousness. You put those together, you have Melchizedek, and it tells us in the text anyway that he is, by translation, king of righteousness. Okay, we have our first clue right there, right? King of righteousness. Now, you know, interpreters and commentators and Bible students and theologians over the years, uh, thousands of years, they've kicked this around, and there's all kind of ideas of who Melchizedek uh, could have been. And I'm not saying that, you know, these are absolutely wrong and these are absolutely right. There are several different understandings, and there's just not a lot of information about Melchizedek, so there's some, there's some gray area here. You know, we, can, we could disagree on who Melchizedek actually was. Was he an actual historical literal figure? Was there actually a guy named Melchizedek, or is this a Christophany? A lot of people think that Melchizedek is just Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, right? Um, the commander of the Lord's army, we understand that to be a Christophany, Jesus Christ breaking into history, presenting himself as a as a, um, as a person, you know, we know that Abraham talked to the angel of the Lord. Jacob uh, wrestled the angel of the Lord at uh, the Ford uh, Jabuk. And, and, you know, we, I understand that plainly to be Jesus. And Jesus destroyed his hip. I don't know if it was with a sidekick or a slam. I don't know. But roughed him up pretty good and, and ended up uh, through the wrestling. This is beautiful. I wish I had time for this. But... When Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, who I understand to be Jesus, Jesus busted him all to pieces, but it was the only way that Jacob could get his new name, his new identity. you got to go to war with Jesus. Why? Because he's going to kill you in order to give you new birth. You remember I told you about weeks and weeks ago about everybody thinks that they're saved by the cross of Christ, and they're not. They're killed by the cross of Christ. They're given new life by the resurrection of Christ. It's all one you know, it's all one story, but I like to bring out that definition. You see, in order to live again, you've got to be destroyed. The flesh got to die so the new man can live. Anyway, Jesus Christ, some say, well, Melchizedek is really, that's just what that is. It's a Christophany. I don't really buy into that line of reasoning. And again, it's, you know, I'm, I wouldn't die on this hill. But I understand just through the way that this is written, and then we read in Genesis 14, and I may get to read some of that. I don't even know what time it is. I'm not going to look at my watch, but uh, that was a joke. Y'all didn't even laugh. Y'all was like... Y'all like, nah, he's serious. You know, all the new people, you know, like, is he for real? And the, and the old people are like, yes. <laughs> um, but when you read Genesis chapter 14 and the way that reads, it seems like simple historical, um, you know, it's, it's, it's historical uh, literature to me. It, it seems like Melchizedek, I believe he was a real guy. I believe he was a real king. I believe Salem was a real place. 
that uh, Melchizedek was actually the king of a place called Salem. Now, Salem, by translation, means peace, too. It's actually a derivative of shalom. Uh, so shalom, we know, is this kind of harmonic peace uh, that we see all you know, over and over in the, in the Old Testament. But uh, he was the king of Salem. I think Salem was a real place. I believe that Melchizedek was a real guy who really did go out and meet Abraham in a real field. And Abraham gave him real stuff, a tenth of all of it, as a matter of fact. So I believe that he's a real guy. Now, what do we make of this then that he didn't have any father or mother? You'd be like, well, well, real people have father and mothers. You know what I'm saying? That's what I would be saying. That's what I was saying. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, uh, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Uh, we jump on over just because I want to talk about the name and talk about the person for just a minute. We're going to go back and talk about how he interacted with and related to Abraham. It says, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So that's why I was just telling you a while ago, Melech and Zedek is just king and righteous put together. So we have Melchizedek here. And then he says, and then he also, uh, he is also king of Salem. So I think that was a real place. They're saying, hey, this guy whose name means king of righteousness, he, well, he was the king of Salem. And it says, that uh, is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, that could be really tricky, right? That could be really tricky. You say, Brandon, you, you're saying that this guy's a real guy. He actually was a king of a real city called Salem. And it was, you know, he was a king of peace, you know, awesome king. But it says here that he has no father or mother, no genealogy. He, uh, he, he continues as the, as the high priest forever, you know, no beginning of days nor end of life. Uh, you know, what, what do you... What, how do, what do you make of that? And, and here's what I understood. And I heard a, a guy break it down this way, and it just made sense to me. And I said, you know, I, I think that makes more sense to me. So could it be a Christophany in the Old Testament? Yeah, it could be. It could be. And you can, you can go that route. I think that's, that's a legitimate, you know, uh, stance. It's fine. To me, what this guy said resonated with me and fit the way I understand Scripture. So in Genesis 14, we see this guy Melchizedek show up on the scene. And to set the backdrop in a little bit of historical context, you don't, you don't see this. You don't, you, you don't see what happened with Melchizedek when he showed up in Genesis 14. You don't see it. And what I mean by that is this, is that everybody has genealogies. It's the way that they're established. We see Moses. We see Noah. We see everybody. Everybody. Uh, there's, I think, maybe two instances, and I forget right off the top of my head of the other instance where somebody shows up in their uh, part of the narrative, the, the major narrative, and they don't have a genealogy. There's only one more, and I can't remember who it was. But uh, suffice it to say that Melchizedek is one of maybe two uh, figures in the narrative that are significant in the narrative who are presented as being a legitimate um, um, spokespeople of God or uh, so on, and they do not have any ge genealogy. They're, they're, they just appear out of thin air, basically. And I believe what's being stated in this is, is not that he actually didn't have a father or mother. It's not that he actually didn't have a beginning of, or end of days. That, that, that's not the point. It's not that he actually doesn't have a genealogy. It's the fact that we have no record of his genealogy. We have no idea where he came from. And I think more significant than that is this is that he has of no record. He, there is no record to establish that he has his authority granted through any worldly system whatsoever, even those laid out according to the instructions of God. 
You say, why, what? Why, why is that significant? It's significant on how he relates, foreshadows, and typifies Jesus Christ. Go back to what I said earlier. How were the Levitical high priests established? Genealogy, lineage, the system. It was the system that appointed them because they had no right to assume authority over anyone unless they could prove these things. They had no authority in and of themselves to do this. They were submissive to the written code. Melchizedek was not. And he is the only one that you're going to find that's not except for one. Who's the only other? Jesus. So the apostle, you think it's random? You think it's coincidence? The apostle goes back and finds the one guy who there's no record and says, you know, you remember that story about Melchizedek where he came out of nowhere and said, this is my show. You remember that story way back where our patriarch Abraham, you remember, you, you know Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You know, you know the guy we sing about, the guy we pray, the guy we lift up like the guy, the father of, you know, the guy. Do you remember how a guy showed up out of nowhere and our greatest figure in all of history uh, was inferior to him? Remember that? You remember that? Yeah, what's your point? Well, that guy that Abraham paid the tithes to everything, he was, just, he was just resembling this guy. You remember how Melchizedek was greater than the greatest person that you've ever honored in your life? Yeah, we don't like to talk about that, but yeah, what about it? Well, that guy is like a pimple on the booty of this guy. No, 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 I'm serious. I'll say it this way. You know that guy, Abraham, who established a nation? He's pretty, pretty important, right? Yeah. Father Abraham. We think about him, right? Well, you see, he was inferior to Melchizedek, and even after him, the entire Levitical system that came after him that was established through the through the lineage of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, all those priests, you know Levi who gets all your money all the time? Oh, yeah, we know Levi. We know Levi. Well, do you know that Levi, while still in the loins of Abraham, I won't tell you where that is exactly, but think about it. Levi, while he was still in seed form, in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to the guy that only resembled this guy. That's how amazing this guy is. You see it? I think, and as this guy said, and uh, Sam Storm uh, is one of the guys that I heard breaking this down, and he said it this way, and I thought it was good. The lack of information 
that we have about, about Melchizedek is actually one of the positive teaching components of how we should understand Melchizedek. The fact that his genealogy is not recorded, the fact that he has no father or mother recorded, the fact that there is no record of his birth or his death is the significant factor in understanding how and what he teaches us about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, so Melchizedek, there's no record of his beginning of days. He had a beginning of days in my understanding, my opinion. He had a beginning of days, we just don't know when it was. Jesus Christ literally, actually, he, uh, you know, has no beginning of days. He has no day. You say, well, no, Jesus was, no, he, he was born, wasn't he? Have I been getting this wrong the whole time? Jesus Christ, the man, had a birthday and he had a death day. The second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, has no beginning and he has no end. God, the Son, who came to the earth and was born a man, and his deity, he'd always existed in the form of God. He was God in the beginning. He was there. He created everything. He sustains everything by the word of his power. If it wasn't for the second member of the Trinity, God, then we would all literally evaporate into thin air. He, even those of you who may be unbelievers in the room, you get your sustenance. You get your, your reality. You are who you are because Christ has said you will be who you are. And you only stay who you are because Christ has said you can stay for a little while. Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer. This second member of the Trinity has always existed. He took on flesh. The deity became one with man. God became one with man. God didn't become man. God, in his deity, took on human flesh, and he became the God-man. He didn't stop being God and start being man. God became a man, meaning he added humanity to himself. We call it the hypostatic union. We don't have to break all that down. The two became one. And he continues on existing as those two uh, primary parts, God and man, fused together, unable to be unfused. Are you confused? <laughs> God took on humanity and he became the God-man and can never be separated again. Why? It's because he continues on as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as the second member of the Trinity, God who took on man, remember Hebrews chapter 2, he had to take on human flesh so that he could relate to us. There could be no bridge between God and man except for a God-man who could do only what God could do for man who had to have a man do what only man needed done. Does that make sense? Am I talking in riddles? Now this God-man, Jesus Christ, exists now forever, continuing on forever as the God-man. So, what, if you would have went to heaven, say, a billion years ago, 
you would not have seen Jesus Christ the man. You would have seen the second member of the Trinity if he allowed you. You would not have seen Jesus Christ the man. Why? He ain't been born yet. But now, when you die post-resurrection and ascension, who do you see? Jesus Christ the God-man. He will remain the God-man for all of eternity, which for the rest of eternity, forever, which goes hand in hand with what I was telling you a while ago that people don't talk about. I know you, you probably have never heard a sermon on this, but that's to our shame. It is to our failure as preachers and teachers that we're not teaching and preaching the aspects of the gospel that are so very important. You hear, you need to be justified, you need to be justified, you need to be saved, you need to be saved, give your life to Christ, give your life to Christ. Yes, give your life to Christ. Be justified, be saved, but continue on pursuing after Christ, longing for him, understanding that he is interceding with groanings too deep for words, that he now, right now, do you understand this, Gary Bradshaw, that Jesus Christ right now, right this very instant, Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is right now in the Holy of Holies, the actual one, in the heavens, and he is speaking your name before the Father right now. You see, if Jesus Christ is not in heaven speaking on your behalf, can't see, to the Father right now, you would evaporate into thin air and you would spend eternity in hell. Jesus Christ does not just save you one time. He continually saves and upholds your salvation for the rest of eternity. And that's not to say that he saves you over and over and over again. No, what I'm saying is, is that your salvation, if it's true salvation, is just an extended relationship with the second member of the Trinity who is the God-man, the perfect sacrifice, the only high priest that could continually offer. That could continually offer to appease God on your behalf. Right? He is our righteousness. Salvation Salvation is a beginning, an ongoing, hand-in-hand walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes justification, to be sure. But it also includes an ongoing sanctification, glorification. It's all part of the same package. All part of the same package. This Jesus Christ did not become a high priest in that way. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, has always had what was needed to be established. Now, that would actually be a false statement if I said, and if I said this, let me retract it. I can't remember. I got, in the, I got a little excited there for a second. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, hasn't, I don't think, has not always been the high priest in eternity past. I don't think he could have. Why? Why would you, why would you think that I thought that? Keith, got any ideas? Yes, that's exactly right. He has to have humanity. He could have always been established. He had every quality needed to be established as the great high priest forever as soon as he was born, as soon as he was conceived, as soon as he... As soon as the blood and the water mix, and there's life. High priest. That's what, so if you want to ask, when did he become able to make a sacrifice on behalf of mankind? 
I would say in this case, I just on the spot. I'm, you might correct me after this. I might, I might get, I might get in trouble. But I'm going I'm to do it anyway, right? Me and Keith had a conversation actually with another guy a while back, and this was very insightful. I thought it was fascinating. This actually has to do with the abortion debate. When is a life a life? You know, you got these people be like, man, there ain't no baby in there. Well, what's that foot pressed up on the, her stomach that's pressing out like you can see toes? What is it then? If that ain't no baby, we in trouble. <laughs> She's got some kind of invader, you know. <laughs> no, nah, it looks like a baby's foot pressing on the wall. You know, like when is life life, right? And I didn't know this, and, and Keith has been doing some research and study, and we sat down and had a conversation. I, my mind was just, you know. So I'm no expert, but according to these guys, and I, you know, I, I did you know, look into this after that, and it's like, wow. So when a man and a woman, you know, you know, and then the seed goes in and fertilizes the egg, okay? Seed goes in and fertilizes the egg. This is important. You know, Jesus was born, all right? Something, you know, God's seed, whatever. The seed goes in, fertilizes the egg. The egg then need the fertilized egg. So some, some, some say at fertilization, that's conception. That's a, that's a life there, you know. And well, that egg after fertilization has no blood. You know, a fertilized egg has no blood in it. There's, there's still some things that need to happen. That egg then travels, however it does, and it attaches to the, it attaches to the uterus. Well, when that egg attaches to that uterus, now all this is scientifically based, really fascinating stuff if you want to go look at it. That egg goes down and it attaches to that uterus, and when it attaches to that uterus, something amazing happens. This should blow your mind, like when you think about like God, and the way, like man, I can't even hardly make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know what I'm saying? I got jelly running out. I'm, I'm putting it on like, do I glob in the middle? Do I do the lines with the new squeeze thing? You know, I'm not sure. Dude, when I put my peanut butter on, do I spread it smooth or do I make a little scoop in the middle so it'll hold the jelly because I don't want the jelly running out? You know what I'm saying? I can't even hardly do that. But God, but God has made the female body in such a way that it just does this. It, I mean, in the male, the way it, oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. So this egg, this fertilized egg, like how one seed sperm outran all the other ones. I got here first, you know, and it was, you know, and then finally caught in there, you know, it's fertilized, and then the egg knows where to go. How does it know where to go, you know? So it goes where it goes, and it attaches. How does it know how to attach? That's just mind-blowing, right? You got this egg, it ain't got no brain yet. It's like, hey, man, I'm going I'm to go over here. Hey, is this good? Yeah, here. Well, it attaches to the it attaches to the wall, and then, then, and they don't even know what to call it, do they, Keith? They said it was a switch, some kind of life switch, some kind of I don't know what did they call it? They call it something when that moment where it the, the blood, yeah, implantation is you know when the when, yeah, I don't even know. I don't know if they know, but anyway, this egg, you know, it's bebopping along. It's like oh, here's a good place. It attaches. And then this fertilized egg that has no blood in it, all of a sudden something happens, like a switch flips, some kind of something, and blood comes in. And it's not the mother's blood. It's a mixing of these things and just... And now you have 
Another DNA. What? What? Now, the Bible says, and I have no idea why I'm talking about this right now. I have forgotten why I'm even talking about this. But I'm going to keep on running because I think God has a plan I'm just going to trust. I'm like Abraham going into the wilderness, right? This egg now, all of a sudden, it has its own blood. It has its own life. It's a different DNA. Like, that's not, that's not you. You're like, my body, my choice. Okay. That's another body in there. You know what I'm saying? This is a stupid conversation. But anyway, you got this. You know, and the Bible says the life, in the, blo- the life is in the blood. Well, anyway. Oh, yeah, I remember what I was talking about now. Until that egg attached and that new DNA emerged. Because Jesus Christ, if you could find his body, which you ain't because he rose and he ascended, and one day you'll get to see him, and you might could be like, hey, Jesus, could I like do a little pinprick? Because I would love to see what your DNA looks like. It's held together by a bunch of crosses and rolls. You know, every time you look at it, that little strand, it's like a little stone rolls away. Each one. You could do that. He's got an actual body. Jesus has a DNA. Is this not fascinating to y'all? It blows my mind, right? Well, until he has a DNA, he can't be the high priest because we need the human aspect of the God-man in order to make the bridge work between God and man. All that to say that he did not become the high priest after the resurrection. He was already the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And because he was this high priest, he was able to do the work of sacrifice and offering up that sacrifice to a righteous and holy God who required a perfect sacrifice for the remissions of sins. And in doing so, washed all the sins away of anyone who would believe in him and through faith in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would have the righteousness and the perfect active obedience of Jesus Christ applied to your account. As if you were the one, Daniel, who had perfectly kept the law of God. As if you had been the one who had never disobeyed God. You're like, man, I, I don't think God loves me no more. I sinned today. If that, was the tr- if that was the way it worked, just go ahead on about your sinful life and have as much fun as you can. Because there will not ever be one second to where there's not something sinful about your person. Well, maybe when you sleep. But I don't know. I wake up from some dreams. I'm like, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> I didn't even know I was doing it, God. You know, you got to. Hey, listen, you got if you do not have Jesus Christ standing as your representative right now, man, you in trouble. And if there's anybody under the sound of my voice right now that you have never met the Lord Jesus Christ, you have never believed on Christ, you have never surrendered your life you've never had him just wash over you like a 25 foot tidal wave that blows everything you've ever known out of the water and rearranges everything that you know to exist please please with everything in me i beg you please look to christ look to christ you do not want to stand before god without your advocate, without the God-man, without the bridge. You will not make it. (sighs) We'll preach chapter 7 next week.
crazy. How does that even work? I didn't even get to read Genesis 14. Okay, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next week, and then I'll change it. And I'll preach something completely different next week. I will ask you this. In, in your studies this week, in your reading this week, do me this favor. And I'm going to give you some key aspects to take a look at because we still got a lot to talk about. King of righteousness, king of Salem, Abraham giving a tenth of everything. And we touched on it a little bit. Go and read Genesis chapter 14. Write that down. Put it in a note in your phone. Text yourself, whatever. Go and read through Genesis chapter 14. And you can go ahead and read Genesis chapter 15 too with the Abrahamic covenant and everything. Here's the synopsis. In Genesis 14, we find, well, I told you a little bit earlier, we find these kings who had, um, who had come together. Okay? And these, I think it was four kings, came together against these other four kings that had come together. And the one set of kings destroys the other set of kings, and they take the women, they take the servants, they take, they take everybody and, and hold them captive. Well, then you got these other four kings. They're, they're trying to rally, but they're, you know, there's nothing that they can do about it. And then you have Abraham who just gets word that one of the people that was taken into captivity by a worldly kingdom. Now, just listen. You have Abraham, who's just a man of God. He's not a king. He's just a man trying to do what God has called him to do, trying to live for the Lord. And he gets word that his nephew had been taken by the kings of this world, been taken captive by this world. And so he says, in the name of God, I will go. I will rally all of those who are part of my family who I have trained for war and we will go and we will do what the world can't do he goes and they destroy these kings he gets his nephew back he wins back everything that the world had taken he wins back everything that the world lost he brings it back, and as he's coming out in, in victory, he meets the king of righteousness. He meets the king of Salem. He meets the king of peace. And he gives him a portion of everything in acknowledgement and in understanding that it was this king of righteousness who is not of this world. There's no record of it. He just appears out of thin air with the authority of God. And this king of righteousness blesses Abraham with everything that he needs to stand as a victor over the world, having destroyed the bonds of this world and give his people their freedom. He gives to him in acknowledgement. We'll see this in Hebrews chapter 7 too, which I didn't get to. In acknowledging that without you, I'm nothing. Remember, the inferior is blessed by the superior. He gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And Melchizedek blessed him. You understand that it is only by the blessing of the king of righteousness that you can overcome this world.
It will not be by otherworldly systems. It will not be by wealth. It will not be by fame. It will not be by having the best looks. You say, you see, there's one king of this world coming at you. There's one king of this world trying to destroy you, and he's he's taking you captive, and he's lying to you, and he's deceiving you, and he's accusing you, and he's destroying you, and he's beating you down. And so what do we do? For some reason, we go to another worldly king and say, hey, can you pick me back up? And they try, and they give us false senses of security and false senses of hope, only to find out that they can't take us back either. They are the ones that lost us in the first place because we've only always been a part of this world, but all we need to do is to step into the field with the king of righteousness and watch the king of this world fall down let's all stand to our feet Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness he's the king of peace you you struggling you, you don't have any righteousness you don't have any peace you don't have any joy you don't have listen I'm telling you right now you can go to every worldly system every worldly king you want to they have nothing for you but more more pain more destruction, more captivity, and more despair. The one true blessing comes from one place and one place only. King Jesus, who is the King of Righteousness. He is the King of Salem. He is the King of Peace. And I bid you today, I, I, I plead with you. I'll get down on my knees right here if it would help. I plead with you. Do not walk out of this room today without having surrendered yourself to the service of this great King, without having confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, without having turned everything over to Him, knowing that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but by Him. But if by Him you come to the Father, no one, no one will take you out of this King's hand. Amen. Come, do business with God. Maybe it's repentance, maybe it's salvation. Maybe it's just fearful all or spectacular wonder and praise. Come and do business with God. Please.